0: Head with a short the government the government love, the government love the
1: government love, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. And I am joined again after our right-wing takeover just a few weeks ago by professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken. Welcome back to a more balanced politics, guys
0: yeah, so it's good to be back. Good to have you back trey.
1: It is it's fun i mean I, I hope that you enjoyed the left wing takeover i mean the, the I mean you guys were probably smoking weed or something while you did your <laughs> show, but on the on the conservative <laughs> shift. <show.
0: laughs>
1: He said, uh, ironically, although, you know, who knows, who knows, but I hope you guys had fun too, but it, it's, it's nice to be back with you as much fun as it is to take a break and do things with Jay or with, uh, with Mike. Uh, and so Ken, th- this was one of those weeks where I swear when every time we take over the show, that is when everything happens. And so we kept putting the show together and then we kept having new things happen. <laughs> yeah. A lot of news headlines today. Oh, my heavens. Yes. And so we're going to be starting with, I think, probably the most breaking of the item, at least in terms of time. So I want to be careful here, listeners. You know, there, a lot of things are going on uh, and we're just trying to kind of get them an in, in order that we've been coming to us. And so I, I think the biggest item that we had been looking at was obviously today, and that's on Friday. Uh, Donald Trump was ordered to pay $354.9 million in damages. Uh, The New York judge ruled that, um, and and that was because of, again, overstating his net worth in order to get lenders. Now, the decision, assuming it continues to get upheld on appeal, it really uh, imperils his real estate empire because not only do you have that uh, monetary penalty but it also bans him from serving as an officer or director of any new york corporation 3 years and even more importantly and th- and this is something that i i don't think got enough time so far at least uh in the news uh he's not allowed to take any loans from new york financial institutions for 3 years and that is where most many uh, financial institutions are. Further, an independent monitor and a compliance director are going to oversee Trump's businesses because, according to the judge, Trump and his defendants are, quote, incapable of admitting the error of their ways, end quote. Now, Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, said that the ruling was, quote, manifest injustice and the culmination of a multi-year politically fooled witch hunt. Now, if Trump's earlier claims as his wealth are any indication, this would be a very large portion of the $400 million Trump says that he has in cash. And Ken, I know this is a little bit more in your field. So what do you think happens on appeal? Because inevitably, this is being appealed.
0: Yeah, I think it stands up uh, easily on appeal. In fact, I'm, I, I, I think it'll be appealed. You know, everybody says inevitably there is a chance that he won't be able to post the bond that he'd have to post to take an appeal because... Well, that's something we talked about.
1: And I'd like for you to reiterate that for people maybe who, who hadn't listened to us the last time we talked. There is this bond we have to put up because... So, uh, take us through that for a second.
0: Yeah. So, you know, typically if there's a big civil judgment against a party, um, you know, one one kind of... Uh, you could call it a moral hazard that could happen is uh, if they can appeal and, and they know that the Appeal is going to take you know typically at least a year and a half, maybe longer. Um, then you know all the money could be moving around during that time. So by by the time by the time the appeal gets uh, decided, you know if there's no controls, um, you know someone with a multi hundred million dollar judgment against them, you know might have hidden away all that money in Switzerland or Russia or whatever, and there's just you know no way to find it anymore. So because of that, it's a, a standard rule of court that um, if there's a civil judgment. And uh, the the losing party wants to appeal that judgment, they've got to actually post bond for the amount of the judgment. Now there are um, loans that are available for that. So just kind of like when when criminal defendants go out on bail, you know they don't have to come up with all the bail themselves. There's bail bondsmen who will loan them the money, and there's similar equivalents of that for this kind of thing. But it, it is complicated in part because, as, as you noted, um, he's not going to be borrowing any of that money from a New York financial institution. Right. He's not allowed to do that. Um, and he wasn't very – he was never very creditworthy. In fact, I think you, know, you, uh, you might have overstated the impact of, of saying that he can't uh, borrow from New York financial institutions anymore because there were almost none that would have le- lent to him before. Um, he was utterly not creditworthy and substantially all the, the uh, loans that he's been able to get in the past decade uh, have come from foreign uh, credit. Um, you know, the biggest one being Deutsche Bank, which probably also does have New York subsidiaries. But a lot of his a lot of his capital came from the Arab world and from Russia and, and from places like that as well, because he wasn't as creditworthy as, as you or me to walk into an ordinary American bank and get a mortgage to buy a house or something like that, even before. Um, so I, I think, you know, for him to find lenders that would lend him the money to post the bond, um, he's got to find people who believe you know that that he's he's going to be able to pay it back uh, in the end um and uh, and that he's honest enough to pay it back in the end and i you know i am not 100% sure he'll be able to do that now certainly there are some partisans who will probably want to um loan him the money just to help him but um you know we'll we'll have to see how that goes yeah i mean i can't help but
1: think of some of his former lawyers and others who have suggested right that he's effectively stiffed them for payment. Uh, And and so again, I recognize that you might say, hey, I don't like what the court has done. I think that's a big deal. But in those cases, you're talking about people who have worked for him. They were supporting him. And right. So for them to be the one, they're the one saying, hey, wait a second, I got stiffed. That makes it a little bit harder when you're saying, as you noted, like, even if you're going to be the partisan who wants to help put up the money, that might give you a pause that wouldn't if it was, say, a different individual.
0: Right. I mean, I think there may be people who want to give him the money so he can perfect his appeal. And they're not that worried about whether he's going to pay it back. But I think the kind of people who might be willing to loan him the money, but only if they were sure he would pay it back, uh, they're going to they're going to think twice, I think.
1: So in other words, I guess your kind of takeaway here is that it might be more complicated to make that appeal happen because of the necessity of the bond.
0: Yeah, I, you know, he he's going to have to come up with like three hundred million dollars somehow, and you know, a, a typical a, a typical person in his shoes would have to come up with ten percent of that, and they would borrow the rest. But uh, I, I'm not even sure how easy that will be for him.
1: Yeah, and and again, my estimate there is on Trump saying that he has four hundred million dollars in cash. It's not as if I can go touch that, right? So I mean, <laughs> there's always that question as well, right? How much cash is really sitting somewhere in an account for him?
0: Yeah, it doesn't all have to be in cash. I mean, he could sell his airplane and he could sell his Trump Tower units and things like that and probably come up with that much. But, you know, then he wouldn't have those assets anymore.
1: Right, right. You're So then, OK, let's assume that he can make that happen. It goes up on appeal just kind of quickly. You said you think it's pretty likely that this gets upheld. Why is that the case?
0: Well, remember, all of this is state law in New York state, and none of it is federal law, and none of it is in his capacity as president. So there's um, none none of the kind of immunity issues that are in all these these federal cases. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the way he you know, the, some of the conduct that's at issue here. Is conduct that he was already uh, not he personally, but the the Trump organization and Alan Weisselbach were already criminally convicted for some of some part of the same conduct um, that, that Judge Engeron found um, under the easier civil standard that that that, that he was uh, uh, liable for, and also he didn't put on really a proper defense, right? I mean the 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 Attorney General put in an, enough evidence. to to prove the case. And then Trump really didn't put on a defense. All he did is lie and refuse to answer questions and try to hide documents and things like that. And and never really, you know, offered the kind of defense that could explain away uh, the things that the attorney general proved. Okay. So
1: again, there's a lot to be said there, but I think we'll probably put that on pause for just a second, uh, uh, Ken, because Obviously, more things are going to happen with that. But I think what we need to move to now kind of a little more quickly is our second story, which is another one from today, Friday. The next story today, which is Alexei Navalny, who was, well, killed, I think, is the best way to put it, uh, as a fierce uh, critic. Now, what has happened is Navalny... He has been galvanizing Russia's political opposition, and according to Russian authorities, at least, dies in prison at the age of 47. Now, he's been in jail since 2021, serving three uh, prison sentences for effectively fabricated charges. Now, it is likely that he was in fact killed because just this past week, he was in fact seen via a video camera, uh, not in good health, but very much alive. Biden stated after the news came out on Friday, quote, like millions of people around the world, I'm not surprised, but I am outraged by the news. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. What has happened to Navalny is more proof of Putin's brutality, end quote. And as a reminder, you know, Biden argued back in 2021 uh, when he was first sent to jail that if anything happened, he said, quote, I made it clear to him, meaning Putin, that I believe the consequences of that would be devastating for Russia, end quote. Now, nothing has been said as a specific as to what the United States is going to do or could do in retaliation for that action. But it does appear, you know, Mike uh, uh, Johnson, Speaker of the uh, House, argued, quote, in the coming days as international leaders are meeting in Munich, we must be clear that Putin will be met with united opposition, end quote. Uh, He says uh, uh, just a little bit after that. Which has led to some questions, including a post, uh, a Washington Post article suggesting that you know there has been this kind of civil war taking place in the Republican Party uh, over what to do. You know, it wasn't one of the items that we were going to talk about, but uh, but of course, right? Uh, who go, who goes over to uh, Russia this week uh, to interview, interview Putin? <laughs> and, and and so that's, well, of course, he gets called uh, uh, having a weak questioner by Putin, which is, which is in and of itself an, an interesting comment. But I, I do see this as being one of the problems. As a matter of fact, one of the things that uh, uh, happened the other week was kind of the fierce Cold War positions. I think Jay and Mike are kind of our true Cold War warriors in that sense. Uh, But even if you don't kind of take that view, uh, I think many of us, uh, you and myself included, uh, can fall into the at least relatively harsh critics of Russia. Uh, What does this do? Let's start with just what this means in Russia and more specifically, what Biden ought to be doing in his executive capacity. And then we can bring Congress into the picture.
0: Yeah, well, it is. It's it's Congress has to be in the picture because they have not appropriated any any remaining supplemental funds, um, even to support Ukraine. And I guess there's, of course, a permanent Pentagon budget that that Biden can move around some, but um, it is definitely going to take more money to do anything meaningful. I kind of wonder um, about the timing of of today's events and. There was already this schism that you mentioned within the Republicans, where a large number of Republicans, led by Majority Leader uh, McConnell, you know, moved, moved and voted, you know, moved through a seventy to thirty vote in the Senate uh, in favor of uh, giving the next Ukraine supplemental aid, and it seems like a majority of members of the House also want to pass that. But because the, 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 the very hard right, uh, small segment in the Republicans is very pro-Putin and doesn't want doesn't to pass that, so far that has stopped uh, Johnson from bringing it to the floor. I, I think Congress really can uh, tie President Biden's hands quite a bit if they don't fund uh, any responses. But also, it is extremely difficult, even if there was proper funding, to figure out what the right response is, because you know we don't want World War Three, we don't want a nuclear exchange with Russia. You know, it's a country that you know we need a proportionate response, but have to just be super careful about uh, things that could escalate too much.
1: Yeah, and I think the other problem, you know, again, we were we were going to talk more about that uh, funding bill. I know there's kind of two views on that. I, I don't necessarily think there's a majority there, and not just because of the portion for Ukraine there's a significant amount of uh democratic pushback on the bill in the house in terms of the aid to Israel <laughs> which is yeah, something right. else they we have, need to they take have up to be
0: severed i think yeah I so, yeah
1: yeah the yeah. so point being is, is i'm not it, it depends so but that, that's why i was trying to separate that maybe a little bit but but you're right this is one of these i mean theoretically in international law uh, you know, there I mean there's there is nothing that suggests that we have the ability to attack or do things to a country in that way, and we already are pulling a bunch of the levers that we would potentially use that are short of that, economic and otherwise, as a result of, of Russia's aggression. And so when you say, you know, you got to be careful and, and measured in that response, I don't disagree. But, you know, if I was sitting here making my list and, and you know, was, if I was in the White House and I'm working with Biden, I'm not sure what else is on the list, to be honest.
0: Because right, Yeah, I agree. We're already taking a lot of economic sanctions. We're already giving a lot of military aid to Ukraine. We certainly could be giving more military aid to Ukraine as, as we were a year, year and a half ago. But that doesn't
1: uh, really come across as a, well, you, you did this. Now we've done that. Right. Right, because that's something I mean, we were already seeking.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's right, and uh, um, yeah, and, and I even wonder if the timing of um, the Navalny uh, murder is related to what was happening in our in our Congress. That um, you know this was a moment in time where it looked like the House Republicans maybe were going to hold strong uh, against uh, the Biden administration, even in the face of the Senate uh, Republican leadership, and and maybe Putin thought, well, you know, if if uh, if even Biden plus McConnell. Can be gridlocked by these House Republicans. Th- then I can I can do whatever I want. You know, maybe, maybe that somewhat influenced um, Putin's timing here. But um, yes, yeah, so I actually I would. You know, this all happened today. Um, I do believe there has to be a forceful response of some sort. I, I don't know what it is. I, I'm just like you. I don't think we need to start. You know, bombing russia um, I, I think that there's serious serious dangers here about what would happen if the if the u s. got into a shooting war uh, with Russia, but I also I couldn't agree with you more that we've already been pulling quite a lot of levers, and all we can really do is pull those same levers uh, a bit harder right now, I think
1: yeah, I think the only thing I can kind of add here is I think sometimes, and we have to be careful about this, and I'm not suggesting. That what happens in other countries is not related to what things can happen in the United States. But I think we can get a little US centric. <clears throat> and so one addition I'll say to this is we do have elections. Uh, and again, we can put those in quotation marks or think of them as being uh, uh, what you call kind of authoritarian democratic elections, but whatever, authoritarian elections, but whatever, uh, or, or not fully democratic elections. But we do have a kind of election coming up in Russia. We have things. And if you think about some of Uh, Putin's behavior and his consolidation of power over approximately the last two years. I think that we can explain a lot of it just in terms of him doing that. I mean, we've already saw him put down kind of the minor uh, uh, rebellion, then take the head of that out in a uh, a plane again, (laughs) we're assuming. But of course, he has. I think it, it is sometimes we have to be careful it's kind of like when you're you're analyzing events, you want to overanalyze your own uh, your own amount of, of of agency over those events. I think we can explain a lot of what's happening to Putin and the fact that we have these elections coming up, and he's probably feeling relatively vulnerable since he still has what I think he he thought was going to be a, a quick war already be over. And again, this is not a, a traditional election; he's not going to lose. But you, but not you be, you're still going to be vulnerable in that moment. And I think a lot of that behavior can be explained by that moment and the fact that the conflict rolls on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually think I I like the path you're going down there, but I think one to me, it seems like one lever maybe that might be even more significant than uh, domestic politics inside Russia, which is what you were mainly addressing, is international relations with um, non-Western countries. Right. So, I mean, so far, you know, uh, one way that Putin's been able to kind of hang on um, in the world stage is because basically China and India and countries like that are, are not really on board with all the all the Western sanctions Against Russia, and and maybe you know this 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 murder of Navalny uh, provides a little bit of an opening for the West again to appeal to countries like Russia and India and the the Middle Eastern oil states and places like that, and say, look, you you really got to isolate this guy, and and maybe maybe that the, there can be more levers that can be pulled through that kind of um, international diplomacy.
1: That's a good point. Maybe maybe the goal here for the Biden administration, I mean, I don't think that there's going to be any change in China's behavior, but India kind of feels like a potential swing vote at some point in the future. Uh, you know, that could be a possibility.
0: Yeah. And I don't know if this will do it or not, but it's its hard even for a country like China. I mean, maybe they can just try to just totally ignore this, but it, it seems like it's, it's hard for them rhetorically to really try to defend Putin's uh, murder of Navalny. Murder. It was,
1: it was just, uh, just a walk in the park yeah. and he fell yeah. down and we tried yeah. to give him CPR and you know, none of our nine millimeter bullets changed a thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. I just, I think even, even for, you know, I just can't imagine president, she actually mouthing the words that you just mouthed, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, I, I am sure not. Uh, but, uh, this actually leads into what was going to be one of the things that we thought would be a big part of the story. And of course, it is, but maybe in a different way. And that is this past weekend, and it was something uh, that was not being able to get into in, in our last weekend show, was former President Donald Trump's comments over NATO allies. And this past weekend, what he said was is that he would encourage Russia to do what it wanted to, to countries that were delinquent in his terminology, in terms of NATO. Uh, he would th- he would at a rally in South Carolina recount a story he has told before about an unidentified NATO member who confronted him over his threat to not defend member fail to meet the defense spending targets. Now, what changed was this time or this past weekend. Trump said that he would encourage to do encourage Russia to do whatever it wishes. As a matter of fact, he says this quote: "You didn't pay. You're de- delinquent." No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills, end quote. Now, as you might imagine, the comment brought both outrage, but some kinds of sympathy as well. Uh, Nikki Haley argued that this is taking the side of a thug who kills his opponents, of course, again, uh, referring to a Putin. and I would say in some ways kind of uh, very apropos, given what happened just today. This past Wednesday, Trump went back to the topic, but he did change slightly. He retold his conversation with a NATO member country about its obligations. But instead of saying he would let Russia do whatever it wanted, he changed to say, quote, look, if they're not going to pay, they're not going to, pr- we're not going to protect, okay, end quote. Uh, and this, of course, brought condemnation from President Biden. At the White House on Tuesday, Biden called Trump's comments over the weekend shameful. A former president of the United States saying that? The whole world heard it, and the worst thing is he means it. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. Let me say this as clearly as as I can, I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American, end quote. Former President Barack Obama would follow a similar comment on X. So, I mean, Ken, it couldn't really come at a, at a worse moment to have that comment just rhetorically speaking. And I do think that there is, in fact, I think there is relatively broad sympathy for the underlying point that Trump used to make, which was, look, NATO, all NATO members need to abide by spending targets and to be, a, a, you know, full partners in NATO. But of course, what he says over the weekend is, in very kind of Trumpian way, goes that next level and says basically, look, you know, and if you don't, we'll let a dictator beat you up, <laughs> which is which is the exact opposite of having you know a mutual treaty in, in, in the in the in the sense of NATO, right? This is this is a binding legal treaty, and so I, I think it's unfortunate on two fronts. One. It undoubtedly makes things when Putin takes actions like we were just talking about, uh, it, it, it makes it gives them credence, I think, in a way. And then on the other hand, I think the other problem is, is that it then subsumes in the craziness of his comment, some potentially real and meaningful critiques of, of some of the stuff that happens uh, uh, with NATO. So w- what are your thoughts on, on both of those issues? No, I,
0: I don't even think his underlying critique makes any sense to me. Um, and certainly, obviously, his rhetoric doesn't. But, uh, you know, NATO's not a, a protection racket. You know, we, we don't have NATO to, to shake down our, our allies for, for money. That's not what it's there for um, and it, you know what it is there for is really for the the U.S. to be uh, able to um, protect the stability of the world, or at least the West, in a way that it maximizes the national interest of the U.S. And you know, when, when NATO was set up, I, I think you know, of course, you know, those countries weren't as wealthy as us then, and some of them are as wealthy as us now. So I'll acknowledge that. But but we've thought we'd pay all the bills. I mean, we we thought it was a pretty good deal for us that we could get all these bases all over Europe, and we could get um, those countries to contribute uh, troops uh, and things like that. And if, if we basically paid all the bills that was, uh, you know, it was like leveraging our investment in our own national security, that we were getting, you know, free, free real estate to have bases in, in Germany and places like that. And we were getting to leverage our own troops with their troops. And and we kept the world very safe, stable and secure um, for, for a long time uh, during the Soviet era and, and on afterwards. And also, I think Trump's, you know, basically, you know, he might not know better because he's so ignorant, but he he he's kind of misleading people into thinking that NATO is an organization that countries pay dues into, which they do uh, not. Which they do not, right? We're just talking about spending on their own uh, domestic, you know, their own national security spending. So, it yeah, we it probably should be is- clear. It, 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 part of the uh, the
1: kind of the nature of the the one portion of the NATO set of treaties says that countries will set as an estimate. I believe it is. Percent of their funds towards defense. I, it, it, it's in that kind of right. nature, I believe.
0: Right, but in other words, if they did that, they'd still be spending the money in their own countries. Pay, yes, yes. In the way, it would be like
1: us, like yeah. if we're going to buy, we got to spend X amount of money on the U.S. military. Just to be clear, yeah.
0: Right, right. They wouldn't be giving that money to us, which is the way. Yeah, there's no pool. There's no like <laughs> we're, right. we're going to bring it all together. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if they're if they're not meeting their targets you know, then arguably you could say, well, then we have a little bit less resources going into the total defense of NATO than we otherwise would. But but that's not quite the same as saying the U.S. has to make up the difference because the difference might not get made up.
1: Right. No, I, I think the I think the problem is, is that Trump probably does not understand that portion, to be quite honest with you. Uh, you know, I think he thinks of it as being a pool and therefore, you know, you're, you're he's losing a deal um, because that just that just seems to be the narrative through which he he puts everything. That is just the rubric of Trump. Um, yeah, it's
0: like if we have a, a law in my neighborhood that you got to shovel your sidewalk when it snows, you know, if someone doesn't shovel their sidewalk, it's not like I have to go over there and shovel their sidewalk or hire someone to shovel their sidewalk. It just it just means they haven't done it. Right. And that that's that's more like the kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. I think the,
1: I th- again, to go back to away from the craziness of the Trump part, I think the real bit here that maybe breaks the analogy just a slightly is to say, if you don't, I mean, one of the ideas of NATO is deterrence, right? And I think what you set up for the original NATO is absolutely correct, right? The United States basically said, look, we live in a bipolar world. We're going to be the other pole in that bipolar world. And what that means is, is that we have to make sure that there's enough deterrence that at that point, the Soviet Union is not going to engage. I think we live in a more multipolar world now, if we want to continue to think about it in realist terms, although I'm not a realist in that sense. Uh, but just to kind of use that, uh, that terminology for a minute, say, I think we live in a more uh, a multipolar world. And as a result, I think the potential problem, again, if you assume that the deterrence is what we're doing, which is what NATO is all about, any one particular state not potentially shoveling the sidewalk in your sense to one degree might be an encouragement for them to be the initial target, right? So I, I think that's the more real yeah. conversation to have, yeah, but well, that is far I, I, away yeah, different than yeah, what than anything that Trump is talking about. Yeah,
0: I, I agree that that's the real conversation. I just wanna take it like one step further and say, we're not as multipolar um, when it comes to uh, national security issues as we are when it comes to um, economic issues. So, you know, it's true that the European Union is a trading bloc now that's, you know, bigger than the United States actually, and and and, you know, is a major economic Pole in the world's economy, the same as the United States is, but actually the European Union is not um, a major um, military power that way, and the the sum of all its national armies isn't. And I think it is still pretty much, you know, that the 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 Cold War it thawed for a while there, but I think the old Cold War um, lines are kind of those old poles are kind of re, re-emerging, and uh, I would think it would be good for the United States to take uh, responsibility and, and control um, over. Over the the securing the West um, as the. US. did in the second half of the 20th century. and I think it would actually help us um, be more influential in, in all kinds of foreign policy issues because think how subservient Europe was to the United States you know during that Cold War period when we were footing all the NATO bills and we were protecting them. most of those countries really thought like the most important prong of their own foreign policy was to align themselves with. US foreign policy. No, I mean, I,
1: again, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Now, of course, and this could be a whole kind of show, something we maybe do a bonus show on. I <clears throat> there are tenets of the deterrence theory that I take empirical issue with, not ideological issue with. But yeah, I, I, but you are right that historically speaking, when we were footing the NATO bill, if you will, in that sense, uh, when we were the other side of the polar, we definitely had a different kind of relationship with Europe.
0: But yeah, and I think a better, I think better from our <laughs> standpoint. You know? Well, I mean, in, in yeah. the
1: sense of they were doing what we wanted to do. But yeah. I, I think your point about the economic one is an apt one. And I, I, I don't think we could quite go back to that, Ken, in part because that was a pre EU era. And I don't think the EU would exactly be willing to be that same way. I, I, I think because I think that supranational organization, supernational organization, has shifted what is possible in that sense, and so I don't, I, I don't, not completely disagreeing with you, but I do yeah. think you couldn't quite, you couldn't quite put the genie back in the bottle. In other words, you couldn't right. well, go yeah, back I, to the way it was. I
0: agree with that, but I blame Trump for that because his, when he was president, because I think that, uh, I think that the they would have been much more happier to continue following America's lead, but when America elected Trump. Uh, it became actually untenable uh, for for Europe, and th- and they really I think were forced kind of out of the crib, and and they had to kind of assert themselves as really the 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 kind of central institution in 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 Western foreign policy, because the U.S. just abdicated that role. But it, I agree, it's hard to get that back now. But I think I still think it would be preferable to work towards getting that back. Now I'm just going
1: to add before we move to the next story. That when we get hate mail about you saying that Europeans left the crib, that that is Ken Kek. Ken- at Chase University. <laughs> I didn't say that. I, I went a different direction. I just want to be clear about this. He's the one yeah. saying you screw up. Uh, <laughs> see, nobody would have noticed and I brought it up. Um, but I, I think can, we should move forward to yet yeah. kind of another international, but also uh, domestic story. And that's what's happening in Israel. And we keep coming back to this, but there's really kind of three or four prongs to this. So a constellation of issues regarding Israel and can I think the biggest one that we're going to be thinking through is the Biden Netanyahu relationship as it really has become clear in the past week that that relationship is fracturing and this is in part due to the continued war and escalation in Gaza but it is also clearly part of a pressure campaign from the left on Biden in the United States and so this includes a really conscientious decision a, a, a conscious decision excuse me And the vote of Representative Talib, who voted present uh, uh, for a vote in the House on a bipartisan resolution condemning rape and sexual violence committed by Hamas in its war against Israel. Now, why, you might ask? She argues because Israel is also committing similar acts of sexual violence against Palestinians, and that's not included in the resolution. Meanwhile, in kind of a weird moment, the teachers' unions are also calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Union affiliates had already made similar pronouncements, a little more radical pronouncements, to be quite honest. Uh, but this one was a bit more even-handed between Hamas and Israel. This, will include, this had included teach-ins uh, as part of a pro-Palestinian movement, and, and I, 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 this one gave, that gave me a little bit of, of heartburn in one sense, but we can get to that in a sense in a minute. Uh, Biden, as the Wall Street Journal is reporting, quote, appears to be drawing, trying to draw a line with Israel's proposed military operation to Rafah, where 1.1 million Palestinians, many of them displaced, now reside, end quote. Meanwhile, Netanyahu has continued arguing it would be a powerful strike. This comes at the same time, kind of the third part of this constellation of issues, as Israel has launched its longest and heaviest attack on Lebanon since the start of the Gaza War. And this includes, according to Israeli Rear Admiral Daniel Hagar, an extensive waves of attacks on Lebanese uh, uh, territory from the air. This is in response to Hezbollah joining an array of groups saying that they are supporting Hamas by striking Israel. And as a reminder, because this is something we have not talked about recently on the show, there is firm no border between those two countries. That has been a tension for some time. Meanwhile, kind of the last portion of this constellation of issues, families from Israeli hostages, in response, I think, in, in, in large part, to South Africa's uh, 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 taking uh, issues to the International Court of Justice, have taken allegations against Hamas to The Hague. The family submitted more than 1,000 page, which included testimony from some hostages who have been released. It includes, quotes, allegations of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, along with the taking of hostages, killings, and acts of sexual violence. So Ken, there's a lot of things happening here, but we have this, I think that clear shift with Biden. Biden seemingly wants to be supportive of Israel, but he is disagreeing, I think, with the most recent moves, both in terms of Lebanon and the uh, uh the moves forward in uh, Gaza, and I think he's also responding to some some pretty worrisome hits on his left, saying that he's coming out as too pro-Israel. Uh, and again, we have these other issues kind of surrounding that. So thoughts?
0: Yeah, well, I think a lot of this was um, just baked into the logic of the situation the whole time, right? That that um, the the longer that the war uh, goes on. Um, and the more difficult it is over a longer period of time for all the the, the Palestinian people who are living in Gaza, um, it, it just does become more urgent to try to uh, deal with the humanitarian situation there a little bit. So I, I think it's not um, only because of pressure from the left, but I think that's 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 where Biden would be anyhow. And in fact, I think that's where the mainstream of American Democrats are, that the mainstream of American Democrats uh, want uh, Israel to, to be able to put an end to Hamas, but also want to see um, some normalization for the ordinary citizens of, of Palestine who aren't part of uh, Hamas. Well, I'll pause um, just a
1: little bit there because I looked at this and that is not like if you look at the polling right now, that does not appear to be, you know, the the elimination of Hamas is not a popular position among just the average Democrat at this moment. Um but continue. I, I think okay. your point's still well taken.
0: Yeah, I'll have to take your word. I haven't seen those polls, but I, 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 I tend to think Biden, you know, finds the sweet spot where the center of, of Democratic thought is. Um, but also, you know, the 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 schism that happened within the Democrats over over the the, the war. Um, of course, that's something he has to move to smooth over. So I think the the logic of, of the way he's um, you know shifting some uh, certainly to keep uh, um, you know he is standing by uh, Israel's uh need to continue fighting this war but he's really um uh you know talking a lot more about ways to do it that can both uh uh provide some humanitarian relief for people in Gaza now and also can can start a, a path towards a two state solution which after all has always been the US policy we we've, mm-hmm. we've always had US policy of supporting a two state solution so um in that sense he's really just kind of trying to look uh you know beyond the end of the war you know that we should be pushing things in the same direction that we've always been trying to push things in.
1: So, I guess this kind of brings me I don't necessarily disagree on that, but you know, as I look at this and you know, the two of us have talked about it um number of times over the you know, the past few months. And you know, th- it's not like this is a new situation. <laughs> no. And it doesn't it doesn't feel to me it feels the wrong word. There doesn't yeah. appear to be any empirical evidence to me. That whenever the end of the conflict comes, that you're going to have any meaningful movement to a a, a two-state solution. Because on the one hand, unless something really bizarre happens, I can't imagine that Hamas is blown off the face of the earth. Right. They're still going to be in those locations. And as long as that's the case, it does not appear likely that you're going to have uh, any kind of yeah. shift of Palestinian government. As a matter of fact, and I don't mean this in a positive way, so I want to make that really clear because uh, I have been supportive, right? You know, we've talked about this, yeah. but that doesn't mean, you know, in, in the wake you get to the end it is likely that there will be other radicalized individuals, right? That that is just likely. And therefore, that means that even if you had had killed a lot of Hamas, there's still going to be a core there, and you're still going to have a new set of radicalized groups. And, And I'm not sure what that looks like. So it feels, again, the empirical data appears to me that I think Israel's target is to occupy Gaza for at least some period of time. And I think that's where things really come to a head.
0: Yeah, So I'll take that in two different halves, uh, because I think there's two different directions I'd go with things that you said. One, I agree with you. There's not going to be a two state solution uh, in the near or intermediate uh, medium term future at all. And Biden knows it. But I think sometimes there's um, it can still be correct to uh, have uh, aspirational stances um, that don't where there's no path to achieve them, really. And and I think I think that, you know, even if even if one thinks that, um, you know, it's just that there's no there's no way you can get from here to there right now. Um, Just, you know, the idea. But, you know, we need to sort of keep our eye on the North Star a little bit, not just on the ball and, and try to figure out, you know, what, 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 what what should our policy be that we want to see in the end? Um, I, I think it is good for Biden to articulate that because really there there have been a handful of times in I- Israeli history when uh, a two-state solution came within reach when it would have seemed like it wouldn't have, and there have actually been you know even better than that there have been times in Israeli history where lasting uh, peace treaties um, uh, occurred um, as between e- Israel and Egypt or, or as between Israel and Jordan, you know in periods of time that were not long after, it would have seemed like that couldn't happen. So, you know, I, I agree that there's no path right now. But I think if, if, if it's an idea that is maintained as the, um, the goal, um, then at some point that's hard to see today, there, there could be another opportunity for a path.
1: So what about that kind of prediction? I, I think everything leads me to believe that Israel wants to occupy Gaza for a period of time. And I do not think that is palatable uh, to Biden, yeah. and I I don't think that's palatable right. no, I, no matter where we take the data. Right. I don't think that's palatable to to most Democrats.
0: Right? Yeah, so it wouldn't be where palatable to me lead? either. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it can happen um, because besides how really firmly opposed the, the U.S. would be to that, at least as long as there's a Biden administration, and I think any normal administ- uh, Republican or Democratic administration other than a Trump administration would be very opposed to that. The whole world would be very opposed to that. But also, I don't think Israel has the capacity to do it because of the population there. Um, and, you know, when Gaza, when, when Israel um, ab- abandoned uh, Gaza entirely, they never had it fully occupied Occupied, but they had settlements there, right. but in, in 2005, um, they, they just pulled out all the settlements and abandoned it. It was really because it was unsustainable. Even to maintain the settlements, and you know the, the you know there, there's there's not even 10 million people in in Israel, you know to to occupy a territory that has almost 2 million people and that's super densely populated and and has a lot of arms and has a lot of uh, um, ways of of getting foreign support. Um, it, it's you know it's, it's it seems to me such an impossible military problem that that alone would stop it from happening. Okay. Well, we'll have to continue
1: to see that. So, uh, Ken, I think where we want to move is come back to the to the domestic side for a minute, which was one of the things that I had thought way back when was going to be maybe the biggest item on our agenda. Uh, and that was Democrats flipping uh, uh, Santos's seat. So I think no lie, there has to have been a deep sigh of relief from Democrats this week when Representative Tom Susie uh, won... Uh, um, was able to beat out and win ex-Representative George Santos' seat in New York. The Hill called it a, quote, crucial jolt of momentum. Uh, But of course, we here at the Politics Guys know that's all just a bunch of race narrative uh, that always comes out (laughs) during (laughs) campaign times. It's terrible and wonderful. It's kind of like watching the WWE. You know it's going to come, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, but empirically, and I think something we can discuss uh, is, is this does narrow Mike Johnson's already thin majority in the House of Representatives, something we were talking about already. But I do think it's also worth pointing out here, Ken, that I, I think a lot of commentators are jumping on this to try to predict a presidential election or signs of November. And again, I think we got to come back to the basics. We, we got to get away from that horse race narrative and say, look, Susie, he had already served in the district six years. That's a ton of name recognition, nearly an incumbent-like advantage. And the other is he significantly outraised and outspent his opponent, uh, uh, Mozzie Philip. And this is something that is just true when when you're as political scientists we talk about this again and again name recognition plus money in a bank plus money spent are some of the best predictors of who's going to win or who's going to have an advantage you can possibly have Uh, and, and so I think People are trying to uh, you know, get a lot more mileage out of this. And it's important, but I think it's really more important for that narrowing of Mike Johnson's thin majority for the remainder of this year than it really is in terms of being some kind of bellwether. But what do you think about that uh, analysis and what do you think how that impacts the House?
0: Yeah, well, I actually always thought that uh, Swozy, if that's, I'm not sure, is that, is that my pronouncing right? Swozy? I think so. Yeah, yeah I'm just going to say it that way and I because I haven't heard people, I've read it, but I haven't heard people say it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I always thought he had a cakewalk and, and he did. Um, I don't think there was a single poll that didn't have him ahead, although the polls were close in many cases. Um, but uh, I'm looking right now at a news article that says, um, there were only four polls in the race. Swosie led in all four, with margins in chronological order: D plus three, D plus four, D plus four, D plus one. The actual result was D plus eight. Um, but but yeah, as you said, he had other a lot of other wind at his back. He had won the election in that in that district every time he ran for it. Um, he didn't run when Santos won. Uh, he he stepped out to try to run for governor. Right. Um, and and so. Uh, you know, and 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 I think Santos somewhat discredited uh the Republican Party in in Long Island, even though Long Island is a, a kind of uh atypically uh Republican part of the um, New York metropolitan area. Um but you know it's 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 you know it's in a, a larger metropolitan area that's overwhelmingly Democratic and I think um, Santos you know didn't help the Republican brand there so it, it, it doesn't surprise me that he, that he won. I don't actually I have very mixed feelings about what it means that the um, Johnson's majority got shrunk because you know on the one hand as a Democrat, I like to see that but <laughs> on the other hand uh, um, you know it does actually give more power. To these, you know, extreme right, uh, the small extreme right faction, you know, the the same kind of Matt Gates problem. That the smaller the Republican uh, majority is, the more, you know, that the the hostage takers within that party uh, have an easy time taking a hostage if they want to. And so, I, I don't know how good that's going to be for the country. I guess it would have stopped the Mayorkas impeachment if that one extra Democratic vote had been there, but. Uh, but I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's, if 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 some Republicans uh, don't want to unify uh, behind Republican leadership, um, then they're going to have uh, almost a unilateral ability to gridlock things. And that means there's going to be a lot more gridlock than there already is, which is already too much.
1: Well, let's kind of wrap things up. Uh, I, I say quickly, but we still have kind of one little thing to touch. And, and that was, of course funding in the border, which was something else we thought we would going to be spending a lot of time today, but we'll just try to, uh, to touch on. And that's because there's kind of a unique move going on. So just to kind of bring us up to speed, because again, I know the other hosts talked about this, is, is that Mike Johnson, and his ever thinning majority in the House, uh, you know, first Republicans in the House came out against a Senate negotiated bill written by my own Senator Lankford. That's something that Jay and I covered a few weeks ago. Uh, But even Senate Republicans then kind of came out against that. Uh, And he and I kind of had a pretty feisty exchange, not so much about the bill, but about uh, immigration, if anybody wants to go back and and listen to that. Uh, This then led to the Senate um, putting up a new supplemental aid package with funding for Ukraine and Israel alone together. And that's something that you had already mentioned earlier in the show, Ken. Um, but just earlier this week, Johnson indicated he was not going to put that forward until he had a one-on-one meeting with President Joe Biden. Biden has said no and needs to figure out where he is on it, meaning Johnson needs to figure out where Johnson's on it first. Uh, Steve Scalise basically said that the Biden is refusing to meet with Johnson so that, quote, the two of them could come to an agreement that can become law. It seems likely that all of these are doomed and and, and not just from the right. And that's something that I was mentioning earlier in the show as well. Democrats on the left are not at all happy about the Israeli aid package. Uh, and, you know, a big portion of that has been, you know, House Minority Leader's Jeffries uh, said, hey, look, I think we we can get to 300 votes. Uh, uh, but when you take a look at like, for example, uh, uh, Japal has said, quote, I can't support the bill with aid to Israel. Uh, Garcia has said it's premature for anything the dealing with Israel. So we have a lot of individuals just saying, no, as a matter of fact, uh Chad Pergram, who I used to do things with in D.C., doesn't think there's the votes as a result of the House. Now, what that leads us to, though, is is, is what's the deal is is there's been a lot of talk about, Ken, the discharge position. Uh, you know, the, some of the left and some of the Democratic Party says, well, wh- why can't we use a discharge position? Now, they're not. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. Nobody ever assumes. Uh, but they aren't common. They don't frequently work. But here's the details. In the U.S. House, you kind of think of this. That's what I tell students. Is you've got to think of it divided into two lands. You've got, into, you've got committee land and you've got full chamber land. It's not a perfect analogy, but it works pretty well when you're first trying to understand it. And when bills are introduced, the normal pathway is they get, they get pushed over into committee land, specifically into some standing committee. And nothing requires anything in committee land or in that standing committee to bring those bills out in any form. But there is one way, and that's a discharge And that's a way to get a bill out of that committee land and bring it over in the full chamber, even if the committee doesn't want to do it or is kind of dragging its feet on it. And so what happens is this, is after a bill's been introduced and referred to a standing standing committee for 30 days, a member of the House can file a motion to have the bill discharged or released from consideration by the committee. And in our House, given the numbers that they are as a result of the Permanent Apportionment Act, that means you need 218 voting members to sign it. Now, once the petition reached 218 members, the House can consider the motion to discharge the legislation, and then they can take a vote. If everyone who signed the petition then votes yes, the House takes up the measure. How rare are these? Actually, look this one up, Ken. I was kind of curious. In the 118th Congress to date, (laughs) right, so you get thousands of bills, there have been eight discharge petitions, none of which has been successful. So just kind of briefly here as we finish the show, what are your thoughts on this? Because, you know, again, earlier you had even mentioned, like, we might have to even break out Ukraine from Israel because there might not be enough democratic support. What do you think about the discard charge petition as a possibility for the bill as it exists coming from the Senate? And or do you think it needs to get separated? But if it gets separated, can it then get passed again in the Senate?
0: Yeah so you know I I'm going to um I I'm, I'm going to reconsider what I said earlier because I hadn't heard uh Hakim Jeffries's comment that he thought there could be 300 votes until you said it um but I would I would put some some stock in that so if 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 Hakeem Jeffries is counting heads and, and he thinks there's 300 votes for an unsevered bill. You know, I'm sure he could be puffing a little bit and it might not be 300, but I'm sure there's enough to pass it. And it actually stands to reason that there would be, because I think both the number of um, Democrats who would vote no because of Israel aid and the number of Republicans who would uh, vote no uh, be because of Ukraine aid um, really don't add up to a majority. And I think the majority would probably vote yes for an unsevered bill. Um, and as you point out, it, it causes complications if they do sever it because then you have to go back to the Senate and revote things and the Senate might not want it severed. You know, They had 70 votes for the unsevered bill. So I, I think it would be good to try to find a way to get it to the floor. Um, on the other hand, I don't think a discharge petition is gonna do it because, um, you know, for, for a Republican to sign a discharge petition, even in favor of a bill that they are very anxious to vote for, uh, just as a, as a kind of messaging matter, it, it, it does function in part as a vote of no confidence in their own leadership. And in this in this particular uh, year, you know, we've already had such chaos. Within the Republicans, when they 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 dumped uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, and uh, you know even though a discharge petition is not itself a petition to dump the speaker, it's basically a petition saying I don't trust the speaker to control the legislative agenda, even though he's the speaker that represents my party. Um, and I I think that the, I don't think any Republicans will have the uh, stomach for that in the same Congress where they had to deal with the ordeal of actually actually voting no confidence in a speaker.
1: Well, I'll just kind of briefly put an addendum on that. You know, so if we take, and I had you know, that it, the, uh, 300 is Jeffrey's, uh, uh go, um, but I've done some math on this, and again, this comes uh, via I'm always following Shed Program right to get to to get to 300. That means you got 88 Republicans crossing the aisle. Uh, additionally, though, to get to the 218 voting members, right, you've only got 212 Democrats uh, uh, right now, which means you're going to need to have six Democrats, or excuse me, six Republicans cross the aisle in order to get the discharge petition. And if you're counting the number of Democrats who have already come out and saying they wouldn't vote the combined package, you're down to somewhere between 200 to uh, 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 uh 199 democrats which means you would need even more republicans to get up to that 300 number because keep in mind right now we still have four vacancies uh depending on when the new york seat can get filled we'll be down to three vacancies uh so
0: yeah i you know yeah I'm, I'm bringing some different assumptions to that math than you are though um i I, I agree with you that the discharge petition path can't work for the reasons okay. that I said but i don't I don't think that the um it's impossible that that Johnson could support an unsevered bill and if if Johnson supports an unsevered bill um then you know the the Republicans wouldn't be crossing the aisle to vote for it Right, you'd have you'd have a bill that's supported by Republican leadership, and I think some some Republicans would still vote against it, and some Democrats would still vote against it. But I'm really positive that um, Jeffries' number would be in the right ballpark if if Johnson could be persuaded to bring the bill to the floor. Which,
1: again, given some of the comments we saw earlier, it seems like he might be reconsidering that possibility. Well, Ken, on that kind of predictive note, I think we need to bring the end to the show. So remember that uh, we will be doing in just minutes one of my favorite things, which is our bonus show. And so that bonus show, we've been going, Ken and I have been going through. Uh, the Constitution of the United States, and we're going to be taking on the Second Amendment. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So if you'd like to be able to get the full version of that bonus show, plus a lot of other things, you might want to consider becoming a supporter of the politics guys. Now, A, without supporters, we can't keep the podcast going. And you just make this happen by becoming a supporter. But the other cool part about it, becoming a supporter, is you get all kind of cool stuff, just like the bonus show that I was talking about, including an ad-free version of everything we put out, including that supporter-exclusive midweek show. So I would really like to say, hey, take a minute and maybe become a supporter of the show. So if you want to become part of the support of the show, what you can do is you can head to patreon.com slash politics, guys. And there you're going to see all different kinds of levels of support. And that's going to offer you different kind of cool things. Like, So for example, Maybe you know, only just want to be a part of our, week, uh, our weekday show where we break away from the constraints of the news cycle. Maybe you also want to be a part of our Politics Guys Discord group, which is always a lot of fun. There's all other kinds of Politics Guys gear and other benefits at different levels of support. So again, head to Patreon.com slash Politics Guys if you want to see all those levels. There's other ways that you can support the show as well. You can support us on Venmo, where we're at, Politics Guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of those links are right down there in the show notes. Or if you just want to head there on a computer, you can head to politicsguys.com slash support. If you'd like to get our midweek show, but you're just not in a position to financially support the podcast right now, that's not a problem. I get that. I've got kiddos and a fixed income. Just send an email to mail at politicsguys.com, and we can get you set up. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we really do appreciate it when you subscribe and re- rate and review these episodes. It's a big deal for other users on Spotify, Apple Music, and all those other places where you get your podcasts to see that you found this useful. So please, please do that. Rate and review us now. I know it gets old, but it's a big deal. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or anything else you want to share, you can always hit us up at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and X. Find all of the links in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Join us then.